0: Good evening, everyone. Um, To begin with, let us acknowledge that Queens is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. To acknowledge this traditional territory is to recognize its longer history. One, predating the establishment of the earliest European colonies. It is also to acknowledge this territory's significance for the indigenous people who lived and continue to live upon it, and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relationship to the territory and its other inhabitants today. The Kingston indigenous community continues to reflect the area's Anishinaabeg and Haudenosaunee roots. There is also a significant Métis community and there are first people from other nations across Turtle Islands present here today. This is really important for me. I'm not just saying it for the sake of saying it. We are a settler colonial state, and we need to acknowledge that.
1: Thank you, Rina. We want to welcome you to tonight's session. Today, we're here to discuss academic freedom as part of our Scholars at Risk uh, initiative here at Queen's University. I'm Christopher DeLuca, and this is uh, Rina Kukraja. Um, and we are members of the committee. And tonight we have uh, the distinct pleasure of welcoming Dr. Fahir uh, Bakir to join us um, and speak about his journey as a scholar at risk. Um, in the preparation of this event, we also wanted to acknowledge Chilla, who's at the Basque back for all of her efforts in in the organization, in the preparation of, of this event, which takes an immense amount of coordination. Um, and so thank you, Chilla, if we can just Acknowledge Chilla. And also Tom, who's here, who also helped with our, our technology setup today.
0: I'm just going to briefly talk about Scholars at Risk and then about my own personal interest about academic freedom and how it directly relates to my work and the threats that I have faced. Um, Scholars at Risk protects scholars suffering threats to their lives, liberty and well-being by arranging temporary research and teaching positions at institutions in our networks as well as by providing advisory and referral services. Um, I just wanna say Queens just joined the network very recently and I'm really, Um, if I can use a slang term, super duper glad that we have done that. (laughs) Scholars at Risk began at the University of Chicago in 1999. Since then, scores of universities have joined the network and helped to defend thousands of scholars around the world. As an international network of institutions and individuals, SAR, or Scholars at Risk, aims to protect scholars and promote academic freedom. Scholars at Risk also provides advisory services for scholars campaigns for scholars who are imprisoned or silenced in their home countries, monitoring of attacks on higher education communities worldwide, and leadership in deploying new tools and strategies for promoting academic freedom and improving respect for university values everywhere. This past year, as I said earlier, Queens joins the SAR network, In doing so, we hope to foster an environment of global cosmopolitanism and global citizenship that protects and encourages, as well as fosters academic freedom. Over this year, we have hosted lectures from scholars, and this evening, we are joined by, as Chris did say, Dr. Fayaz Bakir, who's a resident scholar at the University of Ottawa. Um, I'm gonna just briefly, um, take two minutes of your time, or should I say colonize your time, um, to talk about um, how freedom of inquiry, critical thinking, pursuit of knowledge, however uncomfortable it is, is necessary to challenge dominant entrenched perspectives and elite uh, viewpoints. Academic freedom, the ability to conduct research, intellectually challenge and push boundaries, to pursue truth however uncomfortable it may be, is really critical even for the full function of any democracy um, for any scholar um, it allows them to discover uncover on un- indefensible baseless or um, unsubstantiated opinions um, for me academic freedom is is really important and central to my own work in India because I work with the Muslim minority group called the Mayo Muslims who were the first um, from 1917, 16 onwards to um, experience the brunt of Hindu supremacist uh, groups um, indulging in public lynchings that were totally state-sanctioned and overlooked, um, and also on attacks on their um, economic sources of livelihood, including burning down of shops and economic boycotts. I did. Um, I have been working with this community since 2011, um, and it was only from 2017 that I started seeing increased threats of doing research with them. Um, I I have faced both veiled as well as overt threats about my own work, about not publishing, so much so the interviews that I did in 2018, I have not even transcribed those interviews because I do not know who can I trust to even transcribe those interviews because the way the climate has been so poisoned and vitiated, we cannot even trust anyone else with the information that we have. My own, uh, my own um, academic freedom has been threatened by veiled threats by Hindu supremacists in the field who've said to me, turning around like this, you have a daughter, don't you, Reena? We know about her and implying that you know, if you continue that she would face attacks. She would always follow accompany me in the field and from then on um, I stopped taking her because I felt anything could happen to me, I would take it but not to her. So um, this is one example of me indulging in self-censorship, in quelling my own voice and not articulating what people have reposed in me through interviews and again um, as early as 2015 Nobel laureate Amartya Sen spoke up about the lack of academic freedom in India about how openly Hindu supremacist government in India has been doing this repeated continuous assaults on academic, either through curbing the research funding, stopping collaborations, um, denying promotions, um, removal of course content on the baseless ground that it is inflammatory and hurtful of some religious communities. Now why is dissent important for any society or democracy? I'll just end by saying attacks on the autonomy of academic institutions um, are, are really, um, important for us to think about because without academic freedom critical thinking cannot be cultivated and without critical thinking higher learning cannot be nurtured the ability to think, to freely and without fear, engage in intellectual inquiry without unreasonable instructions is really central to the pursuit of knowledge, higher learning, and to democracy itself. Um, it sounds all like high words, but I know the value and the price I am also paying, as well as others around the world who have to deal with it in different degrees. Um, and so um, I turn the floor over to Chris who's going to introduce our guest of honor today.
1: So today we have the privilege of learning from and hearing from Dr. Uh, Bakir. Dr. Bakir is a visiting professor at the School of International Development and Global Studies at University of Ottawa. He served as the O'Brien Fellow at McGill University as a visiting scholar on gender, state, and civil society relations at the Department of Cultural Sciences, Gothenburg University in Sweden, and has taught and researched on human rights and informal justice at the School of European and International Public Law at Tilburg University, the Netherlands. His professional and academic interest in participatory development, human rights, and aid effectiveness, including poverty alleviation, and social accountability. He co-designed and taught cross-border video conference-based courses and themes related to justice and peace, social change, politics of human development in Pakistan for George Brown University, Harvard University, Wowsley College, and Fatima Jaha University. Earlier, he served as the senior advisor on civil society for the United Nations in Pakistan. He received the, co- the top contributors award for the UNDP's Global Poverty Reduction Network in 2007 and 2008. He received an outstanding performance award by the UNDP country office in 2004 for, contri- for creating a vibrant small ground program for low income, income communities in Pakistan. He authored numerous journal articles, conference papers, book chapters, training modules, on, and books on participor- participatory development, inclusive governance, and poverty um, alleviation, including social accountability. We welcome Dr. Bakir. So Dr. Bakir will give uh, uh, some remarks for about 15, 20 minutes and then we will open the floor up for, for questions and, and engage in a conversation.
2: Thank you, thank you Chris, thank you Reena, thank you all of you for coming, I hope you can hear me and it is working, no, (laughs) it should be, yeah, what do we need to change the volume, okay, Uh, thank you for inviting me, it's a great honor and privilege to be here sharing my story. Before I begin my story, I want to tell you two or three stories which are very important in understanding what might put scholars at risk, Uh, why scholars should pay attention to that. One of them is, I think which is very important, and after I talked to Ina this afternoon, I found out it is important for is not at risk also, and that is to have a sense of humor and ability to laugh at themselves. Because the problem starts in the scholarship when we believe in singularity of truth. And we are unable to see our own biases and our own shortcomings and our own uh, prejudices. So that is very important if we want to start a discourse which is inclusive. It looks at the other as it looks at the self. So that's one uh, important thing. The other is, uh, I had the honor and privilege of working with a renowned development practitioner, uh, Dr. Akramid Khan, who served all over South Asia. And he used to say that in the East, Monasteries used to be the sanctuaries for the idealists. And in the West, universities are sanctuaries for the idealists. So that is why universities are very important. If the space is shrinking over there, they can find the space here and come and talk. here. But there are two other important things I want to draw your attention to. One is the truth say that scholars get at risk when truth speaks to power. But there are very subtle ways it can be manipulated and it can affect us. So there was in in Pakistan, a funny story circulated for a long time. There was a newspaper and they had a headline on the newspaper where they had one of Prophet Muhammad saying that speaking truth to power is the greatest jihad or crusade. So they advertised the position for hiring a young journalist for a scholarship to study abroad. And they had a long interview, and finally they said that okay, you are very good, we are willing to accept you. You are almost selected. You have to answer a last question What is the greatest jihad? He said, speaking truth to the power. He said, okay, great, you are selected. He said, but I have a question also. You have to help me find the answer. And they said, what is the question? He said, how do we find truth? They said, ask power to tell you the truth. So that is a very big risk for the scholars. To resist all those temptations, fear and greed. So that is very important. And the second is, a uh, story which comes from Mahabharata, which is very important for a scholar. I, that is why I have written a part of my speech so that I don't have to recall all these things and read out to them. In the Mahabharata, there is a story of a teacher who taught archery to the princess. His name was Drunakarya. And he was teaching archery to his students. And he put a wooden bird on the branch of a tree. And he asked all of them one by one, what do you see? So someone said, I see the tree. Someone said, I see the branch. Someone said, I see the bird. Arjuna was the most brilliant and one of his favorite students. So he asked, Arjuna, what do you see? He said, I see the tree. I see the branch. I see the bird sitting on that branch. And I see the eye of the bird. He said, now release your arrow. And he shot it down. So for a scholar, it is important, when they're narrating their story, to be able to see the tree and the branch and the bird and the eye of the bird. I have narrated this story because if you want to hear my story, I have to tell you about the tree and the branch and the bird and the eye of the bird. Without that, if just I tell my story, it will not make any sense to you. And that is the biggest threat to scholarship all over the world because there's so much deception so much post truth so much alt fact which is circulating which is much more dangerous for ordinary people who are fed on this the system which has been part of our lives it is collapsing and the leadership is not able to offer any answer other than creating hostilities playing up the emotions of the people lipping up that and then creating conflicts all over the world which I don't, I think it is not the solution. The job of a scholar is to be able to start and sustain the dialogue for meaningful change. So what happened in my case, I actually, this is my, my story starts in 1983. And this is continuation of that story, what has happened now. I came to Queens, First in 1983, there was no scholar at risk program, but I thought, if I'm at risk, I have to find some university. I applied to Queens, I was uh, accepted here. The story actually started in 1979, when there was a revolution in Iran, communist revolution in Pakistan and then to counter that General Ziaul Haq was supported in Pakistan by Americans. And he unleashed a reign of terror not only on scholars but men, women, ordinary people. I was young, I I started my career as a campus activist when I was 18 years. When Ziaul Haq came to power I was among those who believed that we need to overthrow his government by raising arms. So I wrote a pamphlet against him, which was very soon captured by the intelligence agencies. And a case was registered against me, the case of treason and spreading hatred against the armed forces of Pakistan. And they started raiding my house and their office, and so I have to come here. But this was not this happened because there was conflict going on between two superpowers. And we came under crossfire, people of Afghanistan and Pakistan. That is very important to understand. Without that context, we can't understand what is going on over there. And at that time, it is very important to know people were motivated people of afghanistan tribal religious people in the name of honor of their women because do you remember the communist ruler who came to power he started opening schools for girls and health clinics for women And they were told that they are dishonoring these communist godless people, they're dishonoring your women by sending them to schools and health clinics. And that is how they were mobilized. And they were given so much respect that Mujahideen who went to visit President Reagan at that time in the White House, he said they're like American founding fathers. And who went there, who had butchered so many people, who hanged the first elected prime minister of Pakistan, and who had a long list of things he did, he said he is the most modest man I have ever met in the White House. So this is this whole conf- how this whole conflict started. It continued when the Soviet Union left the free world abandoned them and left Afghanistan. So there was a civil war in Afghanistan, and then Taliban, they, of course, with the support of the regime in Pakistan, they took over and brought some law and order there. And then the case against them was built that they don't allow women to go to schools. They don't allow women to go to health clinics. So the position was completely changed. So This has continued for the last 40 years. And we have been part of that. We have been under that crossfire. So for us, when it happened again, in 1983, I came here. During my second semester when I was here, I had a nervous breakdown. I had to discontinue my semester. I went to USA. I wanted to spend as much time here as possible so that I don't have to go back because these guys will come after me again. So finally I went back. Then what happened was after 9-11, the conflict again it you know started heating up. And this time what happened was when the NATO forces, American forces, they raided Afghanistan. It is very important to understand. USAID gave five million dollars to UNI- Afghan Center University of Nebraska Omaha to produce primers for Afghan children and youth to prepare them for jihad, which started in Mujahideen area. Which was full of hatred and religious bigotry, inciting people to violence, showing the picture of a Russian soldier beheaded. And those of you who understand Urdu, Urdu or Hindi, it said, Aleph Allah be banduk, jim Te talwar. It was in complete violation of American constitution and law. They could not support any religious hatred-based material. And when USAID's representative was asked to explain it, it, how have you done this? She said, we have supported education and education is secular, so that is how it is justified. So when this thing started again, the war started again, they had their own reason, they had their own stories, but when they started indiscriminating Bombing, and drone attacks, and I will tell you the number, how many people were killed on civilian sides and soldiers and combatants on both sides, Afghans, Pakistan, and then Americans. They said it is collateral damage. In the name of collateral damage, you cannot hide what is happening to the ordinary people. And of one code of honor, revenge is an important part of that. So they started revenge attacks in Pakistan on shopping centers, mosques, funeral processions, cricket grounds, theaters, everywhere. And our story started when we saw this. They were they attacked ISI, you know, Inter, uh, Inter- Services Intelligence Agency of Pakistan. They started their headquarters. They attacked Army Headquarters. They attacked Naval Headquarters. They attacked Air Force Headquarters. They attempted on the life of General Musharraf, lethal attack. At one time, they succeeded in getting to the uh, GHQ, General Headquarters, and almost they captured the Chief of Army Staff. So all these things were going. They were killing all the citizens also. So in Islamabad, I and my wife, we used to go and all the vigils, to light the candles, to lay the wreath of flowers, to show sympathy, whether civilians or. uh, And we thought we should try to create an atmosphere where there is some dialogue possible. People can cool down. We can bring back sanity, but it was not possible because the Taliban was not ready to listen and their opponents, and they thought since the government of Pakistan is siding with NATO, so it is not only legitimate for us to, but to ordinary citizens also, all Pakistani civilians are part of that crime. So when we started showing sympathy to them, started talking, uh, on TV and radio and in public. My wife was very active. Governor of Punjab was shot during that period by one of his own bodyguards who pumped 50 bullets in his body. considering that he has committed blasphemy. So uh, when you know he was killed there was fear all over pakistan no one would dare to come and see anything in his defense so at that time my wife was among the four people she was the first one who went and lit the candle at the spot where he was killed that flashed to you know new york times and cnn and international national media After that, we started receiving threatening phone calls by unknown people. So we asked UN, I used to work for UN, she also used to work for UN women at that time, the security people. Then we approached our personal contacts said, what what the hell is going on? And they said they're non-state actors. Non-state actors mean they could be terrorists, militants, whosoever, and we can't do anything. So he, she used to work as UN woman advisor with the Ministry of Human Rights in Islamabad. So she talked to the minister, Said, look we are receiving threatening phone calls, and how can you protect us? He said to be on safe side, first thing you do is you go to the police station in your area and get a first information report registered, we call it FIR. So both of us went there, to register the FIR. He said once it is registered, then we can depute some police guys in front of your house to give you some protection. Or that's the best way to advertise the whole thing so you become visible if no one knows about it. So we got it registered and we requested him again and again, please don't let anybody know that we have registered this FIR it will compromise our security. And we came home and two hours after that, my wife started receiving uh, phone calls from her brothers and sisters in England, you know, in London, New York, here and there, and they said, what the hell are you doing? And we said, what? And they said, there is a strip on every TV channel that you are threatened by the terrorists. As soon as we left, that news was leaked to the media. We don't know who did it. But then it was on every Pakistani TV channel, international TV channel, everything. So we were out naked, you know, in the public square, in front of everyone. So at that time, then she asked uh, UN Women. they said we can't do anything. So first, they transferred her to two or three different cities so that she is not in Islamabad. But after that, they said we can't do anything. So government or UN, I always, after my first experience in 1983, I always kept a low profile. And I thought a cool-headed and even-headed dialogue might help us more than doing this. But when that happened, then we thought of finding ways to move out of Pakistan. So that is her story. Then she told me one day that there is a scholar at risk program, why don't you apply for that? And so I was at that time managing a project funded by USAID in the Khabar province of Pakistan, which borders with Afghanistan. It was on improvement of governance. So, my staff also started receiving phone calls that you closed this bloody program. Uh, why are you supporting Americans and why are you running a project with their money? That also, So we were able to, you know, record the phone numbers. We shared it with the police, with our contacts. Nobody was able or willing to locate anyone. So we had to decide to move out. But we believed at that time also, that our job is not to look at the immediate situation alone. We have to look at the bigger picture. And we always were supportive of dialogue. And I'm glad finally that dialogue has taken place. And things are coming back to normal because that is the best way which offers of hope. Although the way the tension built up, the hostilities that developed, it will take a long time because the whole public opinion has been poisoned because of this. Because it is very convenient to find the scapegoats and put responsibilities on them and to benefit from them them, you know, on whichever side you are. So should I finish here? <laughs> are there any questions? All over the world, it is happening. And it is very difficult for scholars. I mean, when I came here and I left Queens, I went to USA to continue my work. And I went to a town, Moscow, Idaho. So I went back. When I went back, they was always asked me, what were you doing in Moscow? I told them, this Moscow is in USA. It is not in USSR, (laughs) but the thing is, there I wrote my thesis, master's thesis, and my professor was a neo-Marxist. So he he said, write everything, whatever you want. Once I finished, one external professor was USA's former chief in Pakistan, and he said, you have unloaded your emotional baggage on your country. What the hell have you written? It is worthless. I went to my other professor. I said, this is what he says. He said, you need to translate your thesis. I said, what do you mean? He said, where you write imperialism, you write market economy. Where you write socialism, you say planned economy. Instead of exploitation, you say market distortion. (laughs) Or redistribution of resources. So he said you translate it in a language which they can understand. Only then they're willing to look at your thing. So situation is not very good. But I think on the side of scholars, they also have to learn. Because general opinion has been poisoned. And they can be easily influenced. I have to narrate one other thing to explain this point. How I came very close to Akhtar Amid Khan. You You know he started his career in Kumila district during the Second World War during Bengal famine and he was assistant commissioner and that was the only district where no death took place because of the famine. And he finally had to resign because of his difference of opinion with his bosses in the government. After 50 years of service, in 1993, Three blasphemy cases were registered against him in Pakistan. Old man. He was kept in the police lockup at night. It was so disheartening. And I met him in Lahore at a common friend's house and he was pacing back and forth. He was a very courageous man. I said, Dr. What happened? He said, This guy registered a blasphemy case against me. And then he sent a message that we can have out we can have out of court settlement. And I refused that. And now it seems that it is hanging on my neck. So I said, "Lord Saab, we can go and talk to those people." He said, "Who are you? How will you talk to them?" I said, "This case was registered against you in my hometown. I know." all the mullahs who are witness in your case and i am willing to go and talk to them so i took Akhtar hamid khan and one other friend we went to multan my hometown we went to all the six madrasas whose chiefs were witnesses against him we took a binder with 350 pages flagged with all the very interesting thing because when you stereotype the enemy People thought there's a big conspiracy against him. Religious right is after his throat. They want to kill him. All the activists. I said, we need to find out the facts. An interesting thing is we went there. None of the witnesses had any knowledge of the case. They were emotionally exploited that there's a blasphemy. He committed blasphemy against the prophet of Islam. Was very dear to people, so he must be hanged. So he said, if you don't know anything, we have brought this dossier for you. Look at it, it is flagged, everything. And then if there is any question, you let us know. So for a week or so, we visited them, we talked to them, we gave them evidence, and all of them agreed to withdraw as witnesses. So Scholars for them it is very important, it will take a long time to situation is pluralized. So from polarization we have to bring it to pluralization. But at this time it is not good. It takes very concerted, low-key, inconspicuous way of working with people and helping them understand that they should know what they are talking about. And there is a power play also. Always, I mean, uh, if you look at Pakistan, they have never had more than two or 3% of seats in the parliament. They're not part of big business. They don't have a general following among the voters, but they're projected as if they control everything in Pakistan. So that for that to deal with that and then there were attacks on Christian minority. I talked to those people also. They also said it is always helpful if you don't go to media after some attack has taken place. You can de-escalate the situation, bring the other party to the table, and find a solution if you do it in a very inconspicuous way behind the media. So things are not good. As in India, as in USA, and Pakistan, a, a different history is being fed to the people, which has based on fantasies, and it will take a long time for them to learn. So one thing which can scholars can do over here is to keep writing, researching, and publishing, to keep the nar- narrative going. So there at some point of time when things change and people are willing to listen, there's something there. I think that's very important. You can disagree with me, also whatever I'm saying. So, <laughs> so you don't have to agree whatever I'm saying. Okay. Because why as I told you, my the uh, assistantship was discontinued at Queen's. So then I just started looking for places uh, where I can find some. I didn't know anyone. So I was sitting at the Douglas Library and looking through directory. And then I saw this name, the town Moscow in USA, and the chairman was some for sheikh. I said there's a, maybe there's a Middle East sheikh sitting there in Moscow. So, what the hell is going on there? So, there's no harm in asking him. So I wrote to him, and he positively responded. Later on, I discovered that he was from Pakistan, Sheikh. So, that was one reason. Other is Professor Qadir, who was here, uh, director of urban regional planning. He was my mentor, he was my supporter, so through my conversation with him, I also found out that he knows that guy also. So I applied to them, and they showed interest, and I went there. It was just by accident uh, that I landed over there. My uh, interest at that time was to delay, delay my return as long as possible. So that I don't have to go there. Because soon after I went there, by mistake, I wrote a newspaper column, Socialism Revisited, which was very critical of Soviets and Chinese version of socialism and socialist practice and ideology. And next week, a guy from Special (laughs) Branch was at our house. And my mother said, they've started coming again. What the hell is going on? So I talked to him. I said, what is the problem? Why have you come again? He said, we had closed your files after you left. You wrote this column in the newspaper, so we have been asked to come again and find out what are you doing. So immediately, so I was, my mother was scared that he has come after such a long time, and then they've started coming to him. So I was working with the trust. Trust for Voluntary Organization and this boss happened to be my friend, he was also a former activist. And I told him, he said, and he said that I want to have one more meeting with me. He wanted to have detailed interview with me, the special branch guy. And he said, I, will, I have to come to your house. So I talked to this friend, he said tell him to come to the office. So that my mother can have peace of mind. <laughs> So we invited him to come to the office and he then came there, interviewed me and he had another other guy with him. I said, who is he? He said, I am training him. So then I realized that I have to stop everything. Don't write anything, don't say anything, uh, which in any ways can create some controversy and, That was the issue, so I went to Moscow and then spent some time there. Finally, immigration asked me to leave, and I went back, so that's another story. Yeah, I think uh, human rights issue is there on Vigar. But Pakistan government all, of course, is looking the other way. They don't want to talk about it. There are many other issues in the region also. My understanding is that there are two views. One is to start and feed the conflict one way or the other. On pretext of human rights violation or whatever. The other is to make every effort to preempt the conflict, not to let it happen. I think Pakistan, China, Iran, even Russia, these and other states, they don't want any conflict escalate in that region. It is in the interest of everybody. I think Pakistan normalizing its relationship with India and preventing the conflict in the region. It is in the interest of billions of people in that region. Chinese, Indians, Pakistani, Iranian, of arms. Uh, and they have shown that restraint also. I think after recent uh, killing of qasem Soleimani, people thought that it will escalate. Iranians will react and something, but it did not escalate. So there is an understanding among political forces among the governments in that region that we have to find a way to stop this. And. It has happened in Pakistan's relation to India also. Last year, there was you know, an attack in Pulwama, and then they came back. But after that, I mean, after the curfew was imposed on Kashmir for six months, Pakistan has not done anything. And same after this, because they think that people of India or Kashmir should themselves, they should find a way to negotiate it with the government. So that's my understanding. Yes, please. I think what is happening here, or USA, or many parts of the free world, has been very profoundly captured by George Orwell. That in democracy, all people are equal, but some people are more equal than others. So that is what's happening and other exceptionalism that we go and uh, land our armies in other countries, we go and start wars, we go and tell lies to the people that there are weapons of mass destruction, there's nothing there but that is an exception, we are exceptional. Rest of the world they should do human rights, they're obliged to have human rights, they're obliged not to have conflict, everything but we have some exceptions. So that exceptionalism that is practiced in Canada, one thing which bothers me every time I hear that this is an unceded and unsurrendered territory, what does it mean? Someone comes, enters my house, throws me out and then every morning says it is an unceded, unsurrendered territory I have taken over. What is its moral implication, political implication, financial implication? So, the important thing is I think moral courage is the most important thing, which all of us need, irrespective of what viewpoint or what country or what class we represent, where on the divide we are. And that is But the world needs also. That moral leadership is not emerging as yet. The so-called system we had in place after the end of the World War II, it is collapsing. There was end of Cold War, we don't see any peace dividend. There are changes, so that kind of courage is needed. In Canada, Canadians, I tell you, Canada was the first country I came to. They're very courteous, very friendly, very helping, very supportive people. But it does not mean they are just on every issue. But it is for them to decide how to deal with this. I'm no one in a position to tell them to do this or that. So it is when they, they realize, but I see that. I, I give you a very interesting example. I published a book this year, Better Spending Practices, for showing the cases of aid effectiveness. So there were 17 chapters. One section was the case of Global South and Global North. First Nation people in Canada. That is the only chapter where under the title, there is nothing, it is blank. I could not find anyone who was willing to write anything or interested in writing anything. Whether the First Nation scholars or settlers. I approached people at McGill, Guelph, University of Ottawa, Queens, journalists. First Nation people, they didn't trust anyone. Because they thought people come, and they use our name, do some interviews and then they make money out of this, their own projects. And others, they were too busy in meeting their deadlines and doing their things. So that was the only statement we could make. So there is a big void over there. That uh, I think that that element of distrust is very, very important. And I fail to understand why Canadian government cannot build trust with them. What is missing? Right, Uh, actually, it's very interesting. Before General Musharraf came to power in Pakistan after 9-11, there was only one TV station, state-owned, Pakistan television. We have 135 TV channels now. Then there's social media, there's newspaper. And opinion has become more polarized, more hate-based the space has shrunk. So someone asked a politician over there, He said there is freedom of expression, but no expression of freedom. That is what is happening. Civil society has a a big responsibility. It's not just raising the voice. It is articulating the voice in a way where you can engage other people. That is the biggest test. Because you raise their voice, they also raise their voice. The important thing is, what is the quality? What are you saying? What is the message? How are you engaging them? How do you open their minds? How do you provoke them to think? How do you make them understand that they could be wrong? I'll give you a very interesting example. In Balochistan, where there are thousands of missing young people who have been picked by various agencies or militant groups and Balochistan is the smallest in population size. They thought, how? Th- what is the way? How can we bring public attention to this? How can we create public support for our cause? So they started li- a long march, I think 1,500 kilometers from Quetta, which is capital of Balochistan, to Osama. There were two or three boys, nine, ten, uh, sixteen years, then they were sisters of young people who had gone missing. And they started walking all the way. They walked. It took them a long time. They finally came to Islamabad. Again, I, my wife, we were there. We went 15, 20 kilometers. Uh, outside Islamabad to receive them and they came and their target was to come to Islamabad Press Club because they knew during all the military regimes press has always, always always raised the voice and they came to Islamabad Press Club they camped there And press club, people would not allow them to enter the press club. It was infuriating. They are the persons who should be receiving them and at least giving them some space to speak out. Why they're here? What has happened? If they're right or wrong? If they're traitors or they're patriots? So after some search, we found out a guy inside the press club we knew. We talked to him on the phone and he came and he opened the door and we went inside. But what happened next time, next day, that is very important. Most of the civil society are contractors. Donor funding civil society. That is not which is risen from there. That is very important. So next day was Sunday. It was a holiday. Nobody was working. I personally sent messages to 100 people in different NGOs to come and be with them at their camp because they have come to talk to them. No more than 11 people were there. There was nobody there. So press or civil society and they were heartbroken. They had walked such a long distance, come here in Islamabad, come to talk to them So they came there at nine o'clock in the morning, up to 11.30, there was nobody there. All the civil society, I don't know what they were doing. So they said they wound up their camp, they were going to leave. Nobody is willing to listen to us. So it's a long way. There are, uh, you know, traditionally it used to be students, lawyers, Merchant class, their associations they used to come out. But there are serious gaps. For example, now we asked about Imran Khan's government. Pakistanis have never seen such a high rate of inflation in the entire history of Pakistan and unemployment. Nobody comes out. People have no faith either in politicians or in civil society. That is a worrying thing. There's no leadership and they don't trust. So the element of trust is very important and that is the job of civil society also. Their job should be to build trust. Because there are gaps in knowledge on both sides. Gaps in understanding. So that trust building is the most important part at this time. And there are very few people who can do that. Uh, Akhtar Ahmed Khan, the people whom he groomed and supported, they did remarkable work. I have to mention one, Parveen Rehman. She was an architect. She used to work with him in Orangi. Government of Pakistan, Asian Development Bank, World Bank. No one has the maps of thousands of informal settlements in Karachi. Parveen Rehman was the only one who mapped all those settlements, and she had that reservoir of knowledge. On the basis of it, they negotiated with the government, and they got an Asian Development Bank loan canceled on the basis of that, talking to the government. And so Karachi Water and Sewerage Board, they requested for a loan by Asian Development Bank. And Praveen Rahman, she drew a map of the Karachi, and she showed the points. Where the water is being siphoned off by the mafia. One siphoning point was within a police station. So she showed that she said there is no need for a loan. Just plug those points and the water will be available. And 13 March 2013 she was killed. So it's, it's not an easy job. It's very demanding, but there are people who are doing this despite all this. But it will take a long time. I think yeah. One thing that I mentioned to you, uh, which is cause of many conflicts, and misunderstanding, is trust deficit. But the cause of trust deficit is knowledge deficit. I'll give you an example. For example, there are many civil society organizations raising voice for access to water access to education, access to health, right based approach. No city of Pakistan has any updated map of the cities, base map or services map. Government has no idea of how much infrastructure has been built by the people themselves. Because people are living, they're surviving because they're accessing things, services. Until and unless you create that knowledge base, you cannot negotiate with the government. So they negotiate with the government on the issue of shelter, water, other, because they mapped, they mapped the services. I think scholars at risk what they can do is not only scholars at risk here, but I think there should be collaboration between the Canadian scholars and scholars in that part of the world to build a repository of knowledge which can be used because what is happening, I'll give an example for South Asia to illustrate my point. There are many people who always talk about how much aid should be going to South Asia, quantity of aid, now what happens to aid? The state that we inherited from the British, it was a law and order state, which means you had a police station, a revenue collection department Located in such a way that could, they could reach out every village in the Indian subcontinent. But development agencies, most of them, they had no reach out. They did not even exist be- below the district level. There was no receiving mechanism. It was done by feudal lords through unpaid labor. So you give all this aid to them, and there's nothing down there. There are no maps, there are no professionals, there's no one to receive and use that. So that is a big area because of that knowledge deficit. There's a trust deficit. So whatever is even available, that cannot be appropriated or accessed. So there is a big room to organize communities around that, to build the civil society, to build their confidence, to build their capacities, to engage them in the dialogue, and to change the discourse. So the scholars here if they have the interest and they get the opportunity, they can do a lot sitting here. And building their body of knowledge, that is the most important thing that will lead to uh, building trust. And you know, when societies, the uh, universities here, they provide space to these scholars, that provides them the opportunity to reflect and to in a more uh, cool headed and dispassionate way because they're away from the situation, but they can make enormous contribution and build in building trust and building knowledge. In those. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.